Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. We have another special episode. We're planning this one, but it's been a week, so I thought I'd have Charlie Warzel from the New York Times come on to talk about it. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for jumping on, whatever time it is, Montana time for you, in your bunker, in your wood, your wooden panel bunker. We don't have time here anymore. It's just, it's not a thing. So this will hopefully go up Monday, so it'll be timely because things are changing quickly. Uh, late last week, I thought it might be good to have Charlie on to talk about the president and Section 230 and his fight with Twitter and Facebook. And I, I still want to talk about that, but obviously we're seeing giant unrest across the country. And I want to talk to Charlie about that and the way uh, media and social media are, are playing into all of this, affecting all of this, being affected by it. In a lot of these discussions I have with people like Charlie or people on this show, we end up spending a lot of time talking about how bad social media is, and I'm sure we will talk about that. But maybe we can start off with, with this proposition. I think that social media has been tremendously helpful in the last week in, in a number of ways. There's a number of ways it's fallen down. Uh, we can talk about those. But um, I think from circulating the horrifying footage of, of George Floyd being killed to spreading information about the protests, to letting people know to some degree what's actually happening in their community. Um, this is kind of what we imagined social media might do for us 10, 15 years ago. And we've sort of abandoned that idea, but it seems like it's, it's proving out that there's a real utility for this. Does that make sense to you, Charlie? Yeah, I, I, I feel like it's really difficult. You can, you can look at this situation and you can come down on either side, because the you know the, the flip side of everything that you're saying is this you know sort of torrent of misinformation that is just out there that is like I mean every piece of content that is being produced that will help people understand the tensions and the racial violence and the police brutality in this country is also being leveraged and weaponized into narratives that will you know make other people. Uh, see the world a completely different way. So yes, I, you're, I, jump, I, you're jumping to that. We can get to that. Part, no, no, but I no, just no, wanted no. To, I wanted yeah. to say something positive. No, 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 of, no, no, of no. The no. Internet. I, this actually is exactly what I'm thinking about this morning as I'm thinking about how to um, write about what I've been seeing. But I think, I, I mean, I think you're also incredibly. You're, you're correct about. This is an experience every night. I almost feel like there's, and I don't mean this to be crass in any way, that like around six o'clock Eastern time, people sort of like settle in. You get this sense online of people settling in for like a night of, it's almost like an election night, like a mass event, like a viewing of what is to come. Because there's so many people who, you know, 
either don't live in the places where these some of these protests are happening or can't go out into them or don't want to go out into them and are just experiencing this in real time. And I've never, like I've, I've truly never experienced sort of a, an event that is so broad in its scale. You know, I'm, I've, for the last 11 years, I feel like, you know, Boston bombing, Ferguson, number of other, you know, police protests, Charlottesville, what have you. I've watched these these events play out on social platforms and it's always one event and you're sort of reconstructing it from 30 different angles, 100 different phones, whatever it is, and you're seeing it and you're kind of experiencing the contours of it and that's happening. But then that exact same style of event is happening in 20 cities at once and the the repetition of it is really and truly like, I mean, I, it has the ability to be radicalizing in the sense that like you really can see what's going on. You can understand the strife and the pain and the suffering and the uplifting nature of the collective spirit. You can see it all. And it's just like, because it's washing over you so much and there's just so much of it. I think that, I mean, it sort of is what you're saying. It is the intended effect of, of, of that platform, which is a, like a window into the, into the world. Yeah, and, and again, like you're kind of looking through it with a pinhole, right? You're not, you're not, you're, you see a video clip, you don't know what preceded the clip, you don't know what happened after the clip, you certainly can't go back years and you can't get the context of what's been happening in a community. You don't know who that person wearing a black mask is. Um, and we can talk about all of that, but it's still something. Um, it didn't exist prior to this. I've been thinking a lot about the Arab Spring, um, 2010-ish, and there was a lot of discussion about how Twitter was sort of helping Arab countries uh, throw off the yokes of the totalitarian leaders, and and afterwards there's sort of a, a reconsideration. Oh, we were all we were naive about this; it didn't really help. And also, by the way, look at all the bad things Twitter did. But that was sort of one of the ideas. The early idea of of Twitter was look what it can do for people if it allows everyone to document everything. And then I've been thinking a lot about um, I want to get my year right, but the the Rodney King riots in the early 90s in Los Angeles, where the only reason that uh, Rodney King's, the policemen who beat Rodney King were even charged was because there happened to be footage uh, of that beating. That was very rare at the time to get that. And there certainly wasn't social media to, to disseminate that. And then the one image I really remember from that riot is of the, the truck driver, the white truck driver being pulled out of his truck and beaten. And obviously there were many more images, but that's kind of the only one I saw. And net net, I think we're better off having social media and phones that can record everything and we, we and the document everything. And by the way, can trace your location. We can talk about that too. But I, I think we're better off having this stuff than not having it. If we were forced at gunpoint or some other point to make that call, I think I'd rather have it. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, it's so, it feels so hard for me to like come out definitively and say yeah. one way or the other, but I, but I mean, you, what I can't, what I can't, you know, deny as someone who's been a pretty faithful critic of social media for a long time now is that the ability for everyone to be broadcasting their experience and sharing it. And then the, the totality of it, like washing over you in a moment like this is where you do really, you, you really do understand the power of it. I mean, I, I, there's n like sort of, 
I'm doing a bad job of describing it, but it is just, it, it has been just watching over the past four nights. Like it has been an extreme, like the, the, the collective toll of watching it, I think changes the way that, that you see the, the, a person sees the world. And, and that is an extremely powerful uh, thing to be able to give people. So I, I do, I, I feel probably as conflicted about these platforms as I ever have, because the the positive side of it, I think, is is undeniable. I, I am conflicted as well. Are you watching much TV coverage? I'm not, and that's to some degree because I just it's not it's not like a reflex that I have much anymore. Yeah, but I mean, I think what I think what's interesting is you are over the past like four or five years, maybe six years, kind of like since Ferguson. I feel like. I feel like the the TV coverage, the cable coverage, is actually like taking a lot of cues from a lot of the social. That's, like, that's live where streams. I was going to. It seems like they're kind of melding, um, and there's something about it, the performative aspect of a lot of this, on, both on social media and TV, that that unsettles me um, and makes me question sometimes what footage I am seeing. Um, right, you're it just it's inherent. You know, the same incentives that drive social media drive TV, right? You want people to look at the thing. So you're going to show a fire even. We saw this in the inauguration, right? There was a famous clip of like someone had lit like a trash can on fire. Or I was something. there. I was like, and you, few, I was one of the people recording it. So, know. okay. So if you, then, you, then occasionally you'd see a shot pulled back where it shows a scrum of 20 people, including Charlie, photographing the fire. And then around them is nothing happening. Um, so if you only see the fire, you think something terrible is going on in the inauguration. And then if you pull back, you see a bunch of people looking for imagery. And so I do think a lot about the imagery that I'm either choosing to see or being shown by TV or by social media. And I think they kind of have the same the same reward structure at this point to show me the most shocking thing, the most alarming thing. And that is skewing my, my perspective of what's actually happening. Yeah, uh, you and LeBron James had the same the same observation. He, I think he. I stole this from LeBron James <laughs> yesterday. That like, of course, the media is not going to show this. You know, this really peaceful protest at uh, in um, in Denver or Boulder or someplace like that, where everyone was doing a you know a, a lion peacefully and without any burning uh, cars or anything like that. Um, I, I think that's true. I think too, though, you are seeing some of the independent media, like I've been seeing so, uh, much praise on, on my various feeds for, um, this independent media outlet, Unicorn Riot, which just does live streams and has been doing them at protests for a long time. And the thing that I've seen people praise them for is that they just have it running. There's not a ton of their commentary and it is just a lot of putting a microphone in the face of regular people, and letting them talk at length and that it sort of is like a, you know, it, it's not a very like catchy, like it's not, they're not trying to engineer any viral moments. They're really just sort of doing that real time documenting. And I think there's, I think there is like a hunger for that, for people, you know, feeling like they're getting the actual portrait instead of the cable news facing portrait. One thing that you and I both agree on is, is the total uselessness of the Twitter trending uh, box or column, depending on how we're viewing it. Um, it's almost always kind of garbagey and weird to begin with. And there's a famous sort of like, they put the name of a celebrity there. Everyone goes to see what has happened to the celebrity. There's an, everyone does the, the meme of uh, Denzel Washington looking relieved to find out that so-and-so is not actually dead. Uh, and it's harmless, right? The waste of time. But now it seems 
more worrisome, right? There's if you go right now this morning as we're recording it, there's a really uh, difficult to understand clip of someone's uh, apparently a homeless man stuff being burned in Austin. It's it, the the hashtag is Infowars, and then the discussion is did Infowars stage this or not? You, you literally can't learn anything from watching that. There are a bunch of conspiracy theories about a social media blackout in Washington, D.C. Um, it seems like we would all be better off never clicking on those. And I don't know why Twitter is still putting them up there. It's one of those things that that shows how <laughs> Twitter is almost always actively trying to undermine the the good parts of its own experience. I mean, like, as we're just sitting here talking about how it is this unbelievable tool for documenting history unfolding in real time in this powerful way that, you know, that very well might, you know, that could lead to some kind of larger societal change in the, in the you know, that's sort of the, the lofty view. But but then they, they're also trying to get as many people into the viewing experience as possible. So for the people that don't use Twitter sort of the way it's intended, they've created these trending topics modules to sort of aggregate the news in real time mm -hmm. as if that's, and that's just like, from everything I've heard, people, even, even non-power users don't use the service that way. And basically it's like this liability that undermines. And It's and, like a billboard saying, look at our dumbest stuff. Right, and you know, in the sort of information war space, like it's very well known that one of the prime targets of a lot of bad actors is to, you know, use artificial, whatever, if you want to call it, automated bots, let's whatever you get, want to call let's it. Let's get this trending on Twitter. And, right? and it's, yeah, and it's often not a, uh, you know, indicative. It's some small thing that has this outsized, you know, inflated promotion. And yeah, so it's basically actively undermining all the good that the service does. They should get rid of it. I was leading up to uh, this question, which is Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have been roundly criticized for many, many years now, um, especially since 2016. Do you see evidence of that criticism and their pledges to do better manifesting over the last week in the way they're covering this stuff, handling coverage of it, disseminating information? Um, we'll leave Donald Trump to the side for a second. It's a big, it's a, yeah, it's it's a, a big carve out. It's a big um, one, but yes. Yeah. Um, honestly, I, not really. I mean, I think on the part of Twitter, I think you're seeing, uh, there's a couple things that I've seen where I was surprised how fast they turned uh, things around, like uh, disabling an account or uh, throwing up that sort of, um, I forget what, what you want to call it, that sort of like um, additional information kind mm -hmm. of like, cover over it, you know? Kind of a fact check, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Fact check light. <laughs> I mean, I I think that they're really trying. I think especially Twitter, like I think that, that there's like an, a real like active push. I think there's proof of more resources behind it. I think to some degree you're all, I mean, you're never gonna, it's never gonna keep up with the, with the speed. I think you're seeing even less of that on Facebook, truly. I, I, also because so much of what happens happens behind closed doors and private groups. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I don't know how much better or worse it is, but I've gotten this real feeling of whiplash over the course of the coronavirus pandemic and now into this where I just keep going like back and forth. Like you see a bunch of, you know, epidemiologists going on Twitter and giving, giving you know, firsthand debunks of yes. viral information and giving context and 
tweeting out their papers in really accessible ways and those going, you know, viral. And you say to yourself, like, wow, like this is this social media is doing what it needs to do. It's getting information out from people who normally didn't have that megaphone. And then you see the pandemic, you know, conspiracy video go mega viral. You see the rise essentially on Facebook of of an anti-vax movement that is arguably just as strong as a lot of the public health movements in this country. And that's incredibly scary and disorienting. And I just feel like there's this, there's this whiplash of for everything you see that gives you, that restores your faith in it, you see something that just feels like these platforms are failed states. And it's just really hard to reconcile that. Yeah, you know, I, last week I was writing about this in the context of the pandemic saying, what Twitter and Facebook and YouTube have all done in the last couple months is said, look, when it comes to this topic, we're not screwing around. It's too serious. And so we're going to take down misinformation. We're going to, there's a lot less gray area about this, um, which always seemed confusing to me from the get-go since there was so much about the pandemic we literally don't understand, still don't understand. seems very gray. And now it's even more complex because you can't say, well, we're just going to rely on what the local government and the CDC and the WHO say because those are often now in conflict with each other, or you'll have a local government uh, in conflict with the president of the United States over stay-at-home orders. Um, and so just saying, well, we're going to stick to this rule here and and use that um, isn't a, a, the guideline that they thought it would be. And I think this we're going to see that over the next few days with the protests, too, because you're seeing the president now taking an increasingly strident tone. It's a funny thing to say about Donald Trump to be increasingly strident. Um, and so he's going to say things about the protests and, and what, what ought to be done um, that will be in direct conflict with a governor or a mayor. Um, and I think it'll be harder for them to sort of figure out the rules of the road and, and easier for them to throw up their hands than ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I think too, and this is sort of maybe dodging a little bit of what you're saying or veering, but I think too about what worries me less than the actual like quality of the information and the batting down versus the good, like, you know, where we come out on that balance is the broader, like what, what seems so corrosive to me right now is, is like the incentive structure of, of, of these platforms. Like that, that to me is what's really worrying, I think, in the long term, that it just feels like whatever, like what you were saying with cable news, that, you know, pointing at the fires is going to get more eyeballs. Like, I mean, this isn't a, a new problem by any by yep. any stretch, but, you know, I look at some of the, I've been on, <laughs> the last couple of times I've been on here, we've talked about the pro-Trump media, but I look at some of those people and the way that they've responded to the coronavirus pandemic, as well as uh, these protests. And it, and it just seems like there's a lot of people that are just being sort of led by algorithms to stronger and stronger and more uh, more fringe positions. And I, you know, I feel like the president is 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 one of those people, <laughs> uh, frankly. And and that is what worries me more is like the behaviors that it's creating, the sort of like the it, it, both in individual media creators or influencers, but also larger institutions, like what is being chosen to cover, how we're going to portray these events. And and I think that it's just like, I mean, if going on the internet right now is is like a truly traumatic experience. And and maybe it should be, maybe that's what, you know, what what the the world is right now. But it I, I worry a lot about that influence of the platforms, just sort of like turning, you know, the intensity and the conflict up continually. 
Right. And like you said, this is TV forever. This is talk radio for a long time. Uh, and the internet amps all of that up. Um, we keep dancing around the president. I'm, we're going to get to him. Uh, I did want to ask you a, a practical question as a professional consumer of disinformation um, and someone who spent a lot of time sort of watching how the Alex Joneses of the world sort of work this stuff. I think this would, would have been predictable, but but one of the new sort of narratives is who's actually doing the protesting? And is it, are they black people? Are they white people? Are, are they, is it, is it Antifa? How do we say Antifa? That's how I say it. Am I getting it right? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, is it George Soros? Is it the right? Like any breaking news story, we won't actually know a lot about this until sometime later. But in terms of being a regular person trying to parse um, footage of, hey, that white guy in, in a black outfit is breaking glass. What does that mean? Any practical tips for sort of a regular media savvy, but not full-time analyst looking at the stuff, trying to figure out how to figure out what you should be taking seriously, what you should be casting off as a sideshow, this is credible, this isn't, when it, things are moving so quickly and there are people intentionally trying to confuse you. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, well, it's, first, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point that people just be aware of that. I think that there's, uh, I mean, I, I, I think there's still a lot of people who aren't really aware of the level of manipulation that's out there. I think that probably if you're going to choose, I mean, if you're someone who is, you know, very overwhelmed by this, feels that they have no idea how to navigate that kind of information environment, then I would, my first sort of, before you kind of dive into the pool of this, which is just like an unmediated stream of tweets and, you know, yep. Instagram videos and TikToks and whatever, I, I would say, you know, go through a trusted intermediary. That's obviously the first the first thing, like let a professional news organization that you trust kind of aggregate that. But if you're going to do it yourself, I mean, I think the bigger thing is to spend a lot of time with it. Like don't take any... I'm not saying that the, you know, the significance of one video is or isn't like that you shouldn't necessarily trust it, but like look towards the bigger picture. If you're consuming a lot of it, if you're dipping into the stream, so if you're taking one night of protests, right, and you see a hundred videos of confrontations between, you know, those looting, those protesting, those, you know, um, like law enforcement officers, if you see all those things, I mean, I would say look at the aggregate to some degree. I mean, it, it, it's not foolproof by any stretch, but the thing that's been so indelible for me is that there's been hundreds of incidences of clear escalations by law enforcement. It's not, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not a fringe, it's not a one-off thing. So, you, so sort of taking that in the aggregate, you can really see how, you know, how this is playing out. And I think it's something about, you know, looking at that, not letting any one experience define for you what a movement like this is uh, or, or an event like this. So, but I, I mean, I, the best thing that you can probably do is even if you can't sort of like save yourself from it, you can save others. So don't, if you're confused by anything, don't share it. Don't share it to say like, is this real? Is this fake? Don't publicly amplify anything that you're not certain of, I think is is the biggest. There's the, is this real? Is this fake? And also, does this say what I think it says? And I think, again, based on, in some cases, the very nature of this thing means there is no answer to that. Like I've seen a bunch of footage that says, look at these cops behaving badly. And a lot of it 
seems to be very clear-cut, cops behaving badly. And there's other stuff where you say, well, wait a minute, what happened right before they charged the protester? Or actually in that same video of them charging the cameraman, you can see something's been thrown at them that is shooting out sparks. I'm not saying charge cameraman, uh, but you don't know. And it's, it's, it is difficult. And I imagine that in some cases, some of this video is being used by people with different perspectives making different arguments. That's a long non-answer to your smart answer. No, no, I, I, I you know, it's just, yeah, I, I, what we're getting at here, what we're kind of dancing around is that if you're not there, you, you can never fully know. I think that the best thing to do is to not let one instance stand out for you as, you know, as exemplifying what all of this means. I mean, this is like, this is a, what we're seeing, whether it's coronavirus, whether it's these protests, like we are seeing global and national events play out. We're experiencing them in a patchwork fashion. Not every city, not every town is experiencing these things the same way. Not every city, every town is the same, you know, demographics, tensions, whatever. And I think these are all, they're part of something bigger but what we're seeing is a ton of of individual experiences and they have to be sort of consumed as such and not taken as stand-ins for the larger picture, which is complicated and uh, and really messy. I'm going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back with Charlie Warzel. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And we're back. Speaking of messy, it's time to talk about the President of the United States um, and his use of social media. Um, so if we were talking on Thursday, I'd say, hey, Twitter looks like it's getting ready to really sort of start fact-checking and reprimanding the president um, in a way that it has never done before and no social media platform has done before. And what do we make all of that of all of that? I think that's still the case. It seems way less important than it did a few days ago. Do you think we come back to Twitter versus Trump as a serious story we should be spending a lot of time on over the coming weeks and months? Or contextually, this is less important than than the major issues facing this country? It's both less important and not, right? Like, it's less important as a, what's the stock price of Twitter going to be? You know, like, that seems less important. Like, what does it mean for the business of Twitter to have Donald Trump on? But for the sake of what does it mean for the president of the United States to use, you know, his phone when he's in the residency, not surrounded by anyone or in the, in the bunker now, uh, <laughs> like to potentially threaten violence against these protesters who are out there and, you know, and what that means for the lives of, you know, thousands of people across the country. I, I mean, that is a consideration. That is not a small story or an insignificant one. So, I, I mean, I think like the sort of the business, like the tech angle version of it yep. is maybe less important, but the consequences of the speech, I don't think are any, are any less important. So I do think like, especially as, you know, this situation continues to escalate each successive night, I think 
it's basically up to the president to say what he chooses to do, and then that will reignite that conversation. I mean, it seems like, you know, the what should we do about Donald Trump is a 2015 question that, you know, all the media still should be asking itself going back in the past. The what do we do about Donald Trump on Twitter in 2020 seems beside the point. Uh, I was talking with someone who said, oh, just before I talked to you, said, oh, we, they should really just kick him off Twitter. That would really that would really take the wind out of his sails. And I thought, oh, I don't see how it affects him at all. I mean, he's the president of the United States. Whatever he says in whatever format is going to be redistributed, it'll certainly be amplified by a million other Twitter accounts that want to do it just to prove a point. And this was always sort of the longstanding Twitter and Facebook argument. He's the president of the United States. Whatever he says, we should be listening to. We should be paying attention to him. Even what he's saying is a falsehood. Pretending that he's not saying it doesn't do any good. It seems like, and, it, and again, like you've noticed, he's not yelling about Twitter right now, right? He's yelling about 20 other things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that he set out to pick a fight with Twitter thinking this would be a strategic development for him? Or do you think this is something he sort of backed into, like most things? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's sort of backed into, uh, and then, I, th I mean, it, you get the sense, like, from the reporting that's come out around this, from the executive order of last week, that this is very reactive. Like, this is something they sort of had on the back burner because of previous times when he got mm -hmm. mad on the internet and, uh, you know, wanted to have a piece of paper to wave around. I, I think that that... I think that that quality is very much a part of this, and I and I I don't see this as any sort of like like larger game of uh, uh, of chess that he's playing because I I don't think he's ever really playing chess. We've learned that over time. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, like, do I think that there might like uh, there was a pretty good piece I think yesterday in the Atlantic that sort of that that executive order had an audience of one and that audience was Mark Zuckerberg and it was you it know was story yeah and I think that that's probably true I mean I it, it seems like you know he's he's trying to shore up his Facebook presence and advertising and that sort of you know that that weapon for the coming election so I think there's you know there's maybe a little bit of um real-time strategy that's happening in so much as I want to scare some people. Can we talk a little bit about the the, the Facebook and Twitter uh, sort of fissure? Uh, this idea that Mark Zuckerberg threw Twitter under the bus, the idea that Mark Zuckerberg's trying to curry favor with the president. Sometimes you see this stretched out because it's a, it's a monetary thing. He wants his advertising money. I don't think that's remotely true. Yeah, that's a drop in the bucket, right? I mean... It's, it's, it's de minimis. Um, I think the idea that he wants to keep his platform um, out of regulatory trouble is, is a real thing. But if we pull all the way back, what do we make of sort of the different approaches Twitter and Facebook are taking to dealing with the president, and what, what do you what do you make of that? I think that I'll, I guess I could start with Twitter, which is that I I think that Twitter has always been in this sort of more tortured position that I that I you know in some ways you have to respect because I think that they're actually really trying to square their values with their product, and I think that that has always been in deep conflict, and I think that from the limited conversations I've had with Jack Dorsey in the past seven years, I think that he he is pretty tortured over this, I, I imagine. Uh, and 
I think probably especially so now. I mean, he was in Ferguson. He has, you know, aligned himself with the causes of, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters. The last time I interviewed Jack Dorsey on a stage at, at what we, was then called the D Conference, he brought DeRay McKesson on. Right, right. Uh, and was wearing a, a Stay Woke t-shirt. I still have one of those. I think he has these values. I think he realizes how um, how his platform undermines them. And I think that there's this trying to square it. But I do think that it's put them in a difficult position and one that I think is increasingly untenable. What I'm trying to say is I think that while I don't agree morally with Facebook's stance, I think as a business, it makes a lot more sense. And I think that you know there's something easier about it like they have sort of had a consistent messaging to some degree of we don't want to be the arbiters of truth with politicians. Like we may do our fact checking around other things. You know, we we may worry about medical misinformation to some degree, but like when it comes to like the very clear cut politician speaking, like we have a hard line. We're not doing this. We're willing to absorb the reputational hit of this because this is who we are. And with misinformation in general, right, this is consistent. Even a couple of years ago, right, after 2016, you still had Mark Zuckerberg telling Kara Swisher that, you know, he doesn't think uh, Holocaust deniers are, are have a good point, but he wants them to be able to express that a point. He had to walk that back a little bit. But um, so it's not just about political speech, right? They, they really strenuously object to the idea that they should be shaping public discussion in any way. And I think that there's been a, like a consistency on that where like as an observer, again, I don't agree with it, but it's sort of like, I, I'm a little bit like, okay, well, that's it. You know, like this is a relatively unmovable position. And despite the public pressure, like I think a big change of the last like two years really, or a year and a half or whatever amount of time is that Facebook just judging by my response or the responses I get from Flax and things like that when I'm reporting seems to care less about, you know, the the reputational hit. Like they seem to have adopted a little more of like an Amazon approach where it's like, eh, hey, you know, we, we, we're not going to respond to this or, you know, we don't, we don't really care. Go write your story. And so I, I think to some degree that what that ends up doing is, especially with like the, you know, people like myself, the critics, or you know, the the, the pundits. We call you a pundit. Oh God, you 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 end up sort of seeing it as like, okay, this is a, like an immovable object. This is an immovable force. Whereas with Twitter, you see this like tortured nature where it's like, hold on, let us like we're trying we're trying to fix this. Like, oh yeah, like this didn't come out the way we wanted it to, and and it just feels like there's this constant like struggle. But that to me feels really untenable as a position. Like to take a hard line against the president of the United States. But it feels a little bit like, you know, they're they're slapping the wrist and, and, and saying, like, you know, you watch out. And it, it's very reminiscent to some degree Twitter's response to the way that everyone was treating Alex Jones two summers ago, where Alex Jones was kind of ramping up the rhetoric. It was getting a little it was more and more, you know, crossing the line. And after a long time of, of just saying, we, we're not going to do anything about this because of our speech ideals okay, fine, we're going to take, you know, we're, we're going to sort of, like, here's a, here's a warning. And then the way that, you know, a provocateur type person, a troll, responds to that is they escalate mm -hmm. to see where they're going to go. Like, well, okay, you, you know, you drew a line, I'm going to push against it. And there's, you know, in the summer of, I think, 2018, there was this kind of, you know, back and forth for a little bit. And you could see that what was going to happen was that they were going to ban Alex Jones. Like you could see 
I wrote about it at the time of like the first rule of crisis PR is that you you look at a situation that's difficult and you say like, where is this going to end? And how do we get to the end quick as quick as possible? And it was very clear that the end was Alex Jones is going to cross the line too far and he's going to have to be suspended. And it feels like we're in the same situation with the president, but Facebook is just saying, like putting their hands up and saying, this is this is the way things are. And, but Twitter has this sort of tortured nature. So to me, I'm not a big let's ban Trump from social media person. I think that he is a symptom, not a cause of the toxicity on the platform. I don't think it will, I don't think you can effectively deplatform the president of the United States. But it seems to me right now that the best tactic for them, if they're going to continue to do this, is to just take a hard line. Like, you know, choose it as this is the value of who we are as a company. We can't deal with this anymore. And use that idea of you can't deplatform the president to say, hey, guess what? It's great. He'll be on Facebook or like he'll do a press conference or he'll issue a press statement and we'll all seize on it in the same way. He can go tap out those missives on any other platform except for ours. And that's just going to be either like a, a feature or a bug, depending on how you feel about the president on our platform. And as crazy as that sounds, right, the alternative to what you're describing is also nuts, which is for the next however many months, at a minimum through November, Twitter is going to be anguishing over every single Trump tweet and figuring out whether that one deserves a fact check or that one deserves to be hidden. Um, and again, Trump is not a strategist, but inherently... Like you said, he's going to push back against that and see if he can push them some more and more. And this will just be a news story that probably doesn't go away, um, even if it's a lower a lower order story, especially right now. Yeah, and and I just you know again, it's funny because it's like I'm arguing for a position that I don't know that I like fully believe in, but it just feels like to me like where the service wants to go is they want to go towards this. They want to go towards the nuclear option on him, and, and, and I don't really I, I understand. The, the downside, I understand that this, you know, would get probably taken to the courts. It would define who they are as a service. And I'm sure, you know, they are anxious about that. But at the same time, it feels like they're in this middle ground now that is like the actual nightmare scenario that they were desperately trying to avoid and that Facebook has been trying to avoid where you're stuck in this like arbiter of truth position and you're getting kind of slammed by both sides. You know, you have you have both like, you know, the left who's furious that this guy is essentially threatening protesters on the service and, you know, spreading misinformation, retweeting QAnon accounts. And you have the right that feels, you know, the Twitter censoring and uh, and it's just this terrible position for them. And it seems like at some point, if you're looking from the sort of crass business angle, like this is an opportunity to find your company by your values, to find your service and your platform. I feel like that's where we're all going eventually. And they should, you know, it, it seems almost now that they should probably just hurry up and get there. I don't know. I'm smiling because I, you, bo- you and I both want to see the story happen just for the story purposes. Uh, but we don't know what, we don't know, we don't know what will come of it. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but it's also, I mean, it just, I, I just want to, I want to be very clear that I don't see, I'm not like rooting for this in the sense of like, I want this kind of chaos because it's going to be a really good story. I just like, I see the tale of these two platforms. As, yes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that Donald Trump being deplatformed is, is going to be a, a going to 
continue to keep us employed in any way. Or, or right. That, that. I, I just see it as this really fascinating tale of these of these yes. two companies that see it different ways. And one is kind of fine acting on it and making the hard choice, and the other is tortured about it. Let's end where I thought we would start uh, last week, which is this executive order. I'm not going to recap the whole thing. To me, it seems, and many other people, it seems patently uh, obvious that this is in no way a a legal document. Um, It'll certainly be challenged in the courts. Smarter people than me have said, well, this part might squeak through and this part. But what should we think about this? It's still an extraordinary thing, right, to have the president of the United States create this EO that is aimed at least at Twitter and certainly it seems to be at the the other uh, social platforms and internet platforms as well and professes to want to rewrite a a major part of of internet law. What should we make of it? So I always sort of, as a reporter, try to avoid Section 230 as best as I can in the sense that it is sort of confusing to me. Like, I mean, in, not that I, it's actually a very like simple law, like to read, it's pretty straightforward, but the impact that repealing it might have is very unclear to me. You know, mm-hmm. there are there are ways in which this law does not fit the way that we live on the internet right now, the way that the internet is designed. It's, it's out of date, it feels, in some capacities. It's also a fundamental law that protects a lot of these companies and sort of undergirds, you know, it's the structural support of, of the modern internet. So, and, and both that's the legal structure and it's also the business structure. And right. I think in many ways, the philosophical structure that a lot of the people who run these companies believe. I mean, it, yeah. it coalesces around a law that, that supports that. But this idea that they're a platform and fundamentally sort of not responsible for what's up there, they take very seriously. Right. And so that's all to say that I see it as this massively complicated issue with huge implications for everything that we do on these here computer screens. And I can't imagine a group of people I would trust less with that than the Trump administration in the sense that, A, this is a brazenly political executive order. This is not something that's thought through. I don't think that they have people there who who are thinking it through. I mean, I have no idea who has crafted this order, you know, like like policy-wise, like the number of people. They didn't, I believe, consult the uh, the FTC and the FCC, although yeah. they would be involved in, in enforcement in some ways. I mean, so, so like you have this massively complicated legal, technological, constitutional issue, and it's basically, you know, being challenged by a guy who's really mad because the moderators on his favorite forum right, have right. decided to, so, <laughs> to, the, to the, get mad at him. The document is a joke, to put it shortly, but it's still a, I mean, I'm wondering and still thinking about the fact that it still is a thing. And, you know, we hear talk about the Overton window, and this is maybe a sloppy way of discussing it. But you go from Section 230 being a core part of the Internet to now the president, now uh, backed up by a, a wing of the conservatives, saying, yes, we should be remaking this. You've got Joe Biden, as you pointed out a bunch of times, saying he wants to repeal it in a different way. Um, you've got folks on the left having who've got their own problems with 230 for different reasons. I still can't imagine 230 being changed in a fundamental way because that would, as far as I can understand, involve Congress right. writing a law, and I, that doesn't seem possible. But it, we've gone from this is just a, a foundational part of the internet; it's never going to change. To now, we're having a discussion about it. 
Yeah, and I, and I think that that part of it, you know, to, to the degree that that it can be a uh, an adult discussion <laughs> that it has, you know, that might be productive in some way. I think that's good. Like, like, I, like I was saying, th- there's issues. Like, th- there are definite issues here with, you know, the amount of liability that people should be able to assume, and the fact that you know that that there's not really a penalty for. Uh, you know, helping to facilitate genocide or something like, you know, like it, it means it can happen. It means it can go on. I do think that the way that we regulate the internet, I mean, is is a joke. The, you know, the way that Congress understands the internet is a joke. Um, like if you look at, you know, the privacy protections and and lack thereof, like, I mean, that, that's a joke. So, I mean, in the sense that this jumpstarts a conversation simply by making it a kind of like making 230 a lightning rod. I think that 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 could be good. I think it's going to be the dumbest version of that conversation, unfortunately. But it seems to me that like if you were to fast forward, if there was a Biden administration, it would seem to me based off of what, you know, what we're seeing right now and what we've seen over the last two years with internet speech and platform liability that I would put a team on this to, you know, do what, whatever they do to, you know, their due diligence and gather and have some hearings about it. And, you know, I'm sure they'll end up being a political circus. But at the same time, I think this what this is it broadly is proof that, like, something we need to th- rethink the way that we at least talk about the regulation of the Internet. Because right now what we're doing is saying, oh, it's out of date. But oh, it's fundamental, and, uh, and just sweep it under the rug, and that's clearly not working. That doesn't work. I, I cannot imagine how this country can get its head together to have a, even a civil discussion around it. Again, because you, the conservative argument is Section Two Thirty allows the internet to censor conservatives, and a vaguely leftist position is uh, the problem with Section Two Thirty is it enables genocide or harassment or. Any, any, and, and they're just having different conversations, and I don't know how you get them together. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. I mean, I think, I think probably what that's indicative of is that this is too, like, this has a long way to go before it boils to a head, before it gets to the point where things gets bad enough that there's consensus, you know, to to make a even a small action. Were you surprised that? Beyond Twitter and Facebook, as far as I can tell, only Google even responded to the EO, and they only responded if you were a reporter and called them up and they gave you a statement. Uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, uh, not a peep. I think I think that's right. I mean, as as we're saying, like this is a joke as an executive order. Its implications are worrying, but if you're one of those companies, that's not probably something you want to broadcast. Like, oh, we're really worried about where this this could head because it could have really negative Im- implications for us. It's better to just say like, eh. It's like, pretty extraordinary know. to think that in 2020, we're at a point where major companies, when, when attacked by the president of the United States through something that could have legal implications go, we're just better off ignoring it. Yeah. That's where uh, we are. Yeah. It's that, I think that's what happens when you have executive orders basically sort of by tweet. I mean, I know that this wasn't, this was a, a, a real live one, but, you know, to some degree. It's an extended y- tweet. You're, you're, when you, yeah, when you're like the chief executive who cries 
uh, legislation via Twitter, like eventually people stop taking it as seriously as they should, maybe. Charlie, thank you for your time. Uh, sometimes I talk to you when we're not recording it. And I say, this would be a good conversation for a <laughs> podcast. So we're going to test that theory out this afternoon. If you like it, please tell me and please tell Charlie and we'll, we'll do more. Thanks again. Thank you, man. Thanks again to Charlie, who I don't even think I properly identified him as, as the king of the New York Times. I think that's his official title there, but, but you know where to find Charlie online and at his newspaper of record. Uh, thanks again to Jelani and Joel for turning this around on short notice so we can get it to you in a timely fashion. Thanks to you guys for listening. Um, I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. And I'm glad to tell you we've got another episode of Recode Media coming to you this very week. Stay tuned. We'll see you soon.